0: Door is Open is a think-tank of the Oklahoma Conference of the United Methodist Church, in collaboration with the General Commission on Religion and Race of the United Methodist Church. My name is Carlos Ramirez and I'm one of your hosts. Uh, the door is open. And this
1: is Travis Sutton.
0: And today we have a wonderful uh, guest with us, Dr. Uh, Ellen Blue, all the way from New Orleans or New Orleans.
2: Glad to be here.
0: Awesome. We will be talking about her latest book. But before we do that, will we want to remind our audience, tune us in uh, iTunes. Uh, they can get and subscribe to this podcast. You can also go to thedoorisopen.org and go to the tab that says podcasts, and you can listen to this one and others. And you can also go to SoundCloud, um, and look for our logo, The Door is Open, and you can get it there too. Without further ado, Dr. Ellen Blue was my professor at Seminary for History of Church and a dear friend, and we have a long history, so it's very exciting that I get the chance to talk to her. Uh, after a while anyway so travis take us away
1: dr. blue uh, take a moment please and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your own uh, uh history and connection the book is actually in case of katrina it's about the aftermath of hurricane katrina and in particular the methodist response to um to the devastation Is that a pretty accurate summary?
2: It is, uh, unless you define response as disaster response, because that is not what it's about in terms of trying to help people get back into their homes and giving water to people who need water and food to people who need food. It's a little bit more complex than that, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I am ordained in the Louisiana Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. And so Louisiana is very much my home. Uh, New Orleans has been my spiritual home since I have been very young. However, as uh, you've mentioned, I do teach at Phillips Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I am there for much of the year. And that gave me uh, an opportunity to have a little distance from what happened after the storm that people who were here in the city and dealing day after day after day with what happened didn't have. So that uh, put me in a really good position to do this particular work because I was close enough to thoroughly understand what was happening but also able to be out of the city enough to have just that smidgen of objectivity that let me see things uh, with a different
1: lens than folks who were here so in looking at the book and the perspective of the book give us uh, kind of a quick understanding of where things were uh, initially after katrina and kind of where the the methodist church found itself in the midst of all of that
2: Well, Katrina made landfall on August 29, 2005, and three weeks later, Hurricane Rita made landfall in Southwest Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so between the two storms, which came less than a month apart, we wound up with 70 churches that could not reopen and 90 pastors who were displaced. Mm -hmm. The ones in New Orleans were in a different situation than those in other parts of the states because rita was what you might call a typical hurricane and that the flood came in and the flood went back out mm-hmm. in new orleans the flood walls did not hold mm-hmm. because they had not been built to specifications to begin with and the water came in and it stayed for three weeks and a little longer in some places and had to be pumped back out. So it was damaging in a way that a typical flood is not damaging as bad as that is and brought chemicals and destruction and mold in a way that is not always the case so 80 percent of the city was inundated with up to 10 12 a higher amount of water and it took weeks and weeks before people were even allowed back in so the city was in a state of diaspora people were all over the country and we didn't even know where all the pastors were there was not Mm -hmm. a mechanism in place to track people because it's always you leave for three days and you come back so the circumstances were unprecedented Mm -hmm. to say unprecedented is just absolutely accurate and the question that immediately began to intrigue me is how is the church going to decide what to do. It was a question of, you know, obviously all of these churches are not going to be able to reopen. Some of them were struggling before the storm and with half of the churches in the city African-American and half of them Anglo, also a Korean congregation, a Latino congregation, how would you begin to come up with what is justice in this situation? Mm. And once you figured out what that might be, then how would you achieve it? How would the church even figure out how to proceed? what the next step would be? That was what immediately intrigued me, and I began to, to gather information really the week after the storm.
1: So you begin gathering information almost immediately. And you mentioned that a lot of these churches were struggling to begin with. Many of them were destroyed or or severely damaged. So what did you begin to learn as you were watching this take place over the first years as they were beginning to try to feel their way through this process?
2: It was very fraught with pain and anger and distrust and a whole lot of other negative emotions. There's a phase called uh, rescue, and then as recovery just begins after a storm, everyone pitches in and says we're going to be here for each other. And um, when you're in traffic, everybody lets everybody else go. And, yeah. and you know, there's just this this moment of togetherness, and we're all in the same boat, and so forth. And, and that happened in the city, but I can't say that it really happened in the church. I'm thinking of a meeting that I attended very early on, even before the city was open again. It was in a nearby parish because we couldn't get into the city. And there was a lot of anger expressed mm-hmm. by people whose churches didn't even flood. They, they had a mm-hmm. little wind damage. The level of angst and the level of concern was very high very early on. And that was a little bit surprising because uh, the city as a whole was undergoing a a little bit different different kind of um, ethos, if you will. But uh, the bishop And the provost, uh, the bishop was Bill Hutchinson, the provost Don Cottrell, really worked very early on at saying, we are not going to impose our will on things, we're going to work somehow to let people on the ground have input into what happens. Mm -hmm. And this was extremely wise. So while it frustrated some people very much because they thought you should just come in and make these decisions and be efficient and get things done, the actual results of letting people, uh, a pastoral team assigned and people on the ground come up with their own way of being church and making their own moves toward other churches if they were going to merge, it worked so much better and made for a much healthier situation mm-hmm. so i have to really admire their willingness to share power if you will to opt for a collaborative leadership rather than a, a more authoritative or hierarchical way of doing things
0: uh the churches that were affected were they um you said some are struggling or maybe all of them were um would they in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood or were they more on a well-off neighborhood? Uh,
2: A lot of them were in very poor areas. The city has a lot of poverty. It was historically a city that was built on slave trade. And so there is a very large population of African-Americans we had a very large population of free people of color but not all of our churches were composed of people who had means so the churches often were struggling because historically The populations uh, who made up the membership were not rich people. But even churches that had been founded by people who had plenty of money to maintain their congregations over the years as white flight occurred, they began to struggle as well. And so you had a number of primarily Anglo congregations who did not have enough people anymore Mm -hmm. to take care of the buildings that they built hmm. back when they did, have right. which is of course the situation all over the country. It's not unique to New Orleans. Uh, what was unique here is how many people were affected. Hmm. The United Methodist Church is different from other mainline Protestant churches down here. The Episcopalians have a few churches. The Presbyterians had something like seven churches. The Disciples had three churches. And most of those churches were Anglo. So we were the only connectional church that had so many African-American congregations mm-hmm. and members. So we were the only ones who approached the Roman Catholic Church in terms of diversity and in terms of numbers. And their approach was exactly the opposite to ours. And we can talk about that if you want to, uh, because it, it really is very very informative in terms of what would have happened if we'd done the opposite thing to what we did. But the churches that were struggling, in other words, they came from several different backgrounds and they were struggling for different reasons.
0: So what was that respond contrary to, our, seems like the United Methodist Church started to leadership, was waiting and kind of let let it grow uh, organically, so to speak, using that word and see yes. what it takes us. You mentioned that the Roman Catholic Church took another route, maybe more. We're going to do these, maybe? uh, More uh, imposing? Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Right. The archdiocese here came out with a list right after the storm of which churches they intended to close, which Mm -hmm. churches were going to have to merge, and so forth. And people were totally up in arms about it. One of the ones they decided to close was St. Augustine, which is probably the oldest African-American Catholic congregation in this country and has been mixed race for much of its uh, history. So a very, very historic Mm -hmm. uh, congregation in Treme. And there was so much outcry in the news that they they backed Mm. off that one but Mm. they did send the priest who had been rather activist Mm. they sent him away and of course they are (laughs) since that we are which Mm -hmm. is to say they have obligations to people if it's an independent church and they don't have enough people come back with enough money it closes whereas we have obligations and and connection. So they backed off that one closure and with the other churches they said, okay let's set up some benchmarks and if you are able to meet these benchmarks then we'll reconsider closing your church. So several years passed and the congregations tried very hard and they met the benchmarks and the archdiocese came out with a second list, okay, time has passed and this is what we're going to do it was identical to the first list and so people were outraged and Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of churches in the uptown area were able to organize themselves and people came to church with their pajamas and their toothbrushes and they said we're not leaving you're not going to take our church and they had people sleeping in the churches so finally the archdiocese said okay you're going to have to get out and we're changing the locks well two of the churches people managed to get back into (laughs) and (laughs) and so they would open the door and let someone else in and close the door and uh they again they called it having a vigil at the church Mm. and the archdiocese called it occupying the church as well (laughs) they they were occupying the churches right (laughs) so after 70 days what the archdiocese did instead of trying to be in dialogue and listening and this Mm. was people's complaint all along you haven't listened to us Mm. or you're not talking to us they sent the police Mm -hmm. and the police went into the churches and they went in armed because anytime Mm -hmm. they go into such a situation, they, they, their policy is we have to be armed. They went in, they dragged the people out, they arrested them. Mm -hmm. There were all these little old people standing in front of the police cars, trying to keep the car from moving, taking their, Mm -hmm. their fellow parishioners to jail. And this went viral, it went all over the world, as you can imagine, you know, I mean, this is a wonderful news story, right? Right. And so they did go ahead and close those churches Mm. and it was just a mess, you know, everyone distrusted the church. Mm. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker not long ago that said, we survived Katrina, we just didn't survive Hughes, with Hughes being the Archbishop.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so this is where we could have easily been. Mm-hmm. We could have wound up in the same position because, as the bishop said, everybody with two members back wanted their church restored. Right, right. Well, why did they want it restored? Well, because it's my church, but also <laughs> because of a very valid reason, which is everything in my life has mm-hmm. been washed away. Yeah. Everything in my life I have lost. Everything is different. Mm-hmm. I need something to hold on to mm-hmm. that is the same and what i I use the word for that is sanctuary with a capital Mm -hmm. s Mm -hmm. i need sanctuary
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and so the balance was how can we in some way be faithful to people's needs for sanctuary but also say you know we have all these churches where people have been saying for decades oh if we didn't have this big old building that we had to Mm. put all our money into why yes we could go out and serve our neighborhood and we could be in mission and we could live out the gospel Mm. but no we've got this building and we've got to take care of it so now suddenly hey maybe you don't have the building Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh your excuse has you know evaporated gone with the flood water yes so is how are we going to take take this moment mm-hmm. of of opportunity for enormous change mm-hmm. and to to live the gospel and to live justice in the way we've said for a long mm-hmm. time we wish we could do mm-hmm. so how do we how do we balance this need for sanctuary and this opportunity for living out the gospel mm-hmm. where where do we come down mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. and that was what we had to face that was Mm
0: -hmm. where we were
1: wow sure and so there were um i imagine over the time a lot of creative solutions uh that people came up with in order to try to collaborate in order to try to live out this gospel uh make use of what space they had um what uh how did some of those come about some of those creative solutions or, or where were those connections
2: Uh, One chapter in the book is dealing with what is now First Grace United Methodist. Mm That is a merger of a formerly Anglo church and a formerly African American church, which were about a mile from each other, and which I'm perfectly happy to say would never have merged without Katrina, and never is a long, long time, right? But they would, I'm convinced, would never have uh, been in a situation where they said, okay, we can do more together. Mm. Uh, just because of history and the way things had happened and the African-American church had already been pushed out of Storyville um, Mm. which is another story altogether but anyway um, so those kinds of opportunities came for churches to to struggle together and become a genuine thriving mixed-race congregation But uh, other kinds of ministries came out too, and uh, partnerships between churches who were not that far apart, but were not working together. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, Luke's House, a free clinic. Um, When you think about what happened in New Orleans afterward, there weren't any hospitals. There weren't any schools. Mm. There wasn't any infrastructure. Uh, when you talk about who are we even going to send here to be pastors, mm-hmm. uh, they made it, the Louisiana conference made a commitment they wouldn't send anybody who didn't want to go to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Well, part of that was, you know, if I have children, can I take them into a place with no health care? Mm-hmm. Can I take them into a place with no schools that are open? How how am I going to be faithful to my family along mm-hmm. with the church? So, um A couple of churches worked together to put together a free health clinic with uh, doctors and students from uh, the local med school that was able to reopen. And one woman literally created a health clinic that could go up on Tuesday and be taken down and stored in a utility closet the rest Mm. of the week because the church that housed it had to worship in the same room on Sunday morning. <laughs> so this was an amazing, an amazing mm-hmm. accomplishment for her to be able to take sheets and PVC pipe and put <laughs> examining rooms together. Wow. And so Um the structures that closed afterward, one of them is now home for an amazing ministry with young people in Central City, which is the most dangerous part of the city, just an enormous murder rate. Mm. And uh, this community center, which before the storm was being rented to Head Start, which is, you know, a good use, but be that as it may, uh, nowadays it's the home to Apex Youth Center. And young people there in Central City come in and a woman named lisa fitzpatrick is the the pastor who uh, modeled after greg boyle's uh, homeboy ministries Mm -hmm. in los angeles and so these kinds of things that were seen as impossible you know hopeless Mm -hmm. situations before the storm uh, now through churches being willing to work together who before really weren't even talking to each other very much <laughs> have, have grown and flourished
1: mm-hmm. so the um, you know one of the things that I get out of this is that the, the flood um, and Katrina brought a lot of devastation brought a lot of destruction uh, just was really devastating to people's lives but at the same time uh, out of that, it, it also kind of um, uh, clean the slate, if you will, to to allow some of these new things that may, maybe wouldn't have happened before to begin to spring up.
2: That is true. Uh, there's also the truth that some of the situations that existed before Katrina um, are still in place. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Lower Ninth Ward. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look around the city, there are places where a tourist could come in and think, well, nothing ever happened here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, because the recovery has um, progressed to a point that uh, things seem normal, things seem pre storm now, to me, you know, I drive around and, oh, that's not there anymore, and this is not there anymore, but <laughs> but that's because I lived here before. And so there are places where there is enough activity, enough people have come back to live and so forth that that recovery seems to have been achieved. But then there are other places like the Lower Ninth Ward where you drive around and... Uh, there, it, particularly at night, you know, there, there are lights here and maybe a quarter mile or a half mile away, there's another light mm-hmm. uh, because so few people have been able to return. And there is a congregation out there mm-hmm. that uh, the one United Methodist congregation that's out there is still up and functioning, but strictly because the woman who was named head of the mission zone program after the storm said, we will not abandon the lower ninth ward. Mm. And so we do have a church there, but the area itself, uh, lots of it is so overgrown that you would never know there was a city there.
3: Wow.
2: So the the poorest areas of the city are the last to recover. Mm. And in part because the... (laughs) the mayor, uh, at the time and others, uh, said, this is going to be the last area where people can go back in and even look and see what happened to their property. Mm. It was a place where there was an extremely large percentage of home ownership, but the courthouse flooded. Mm. And if you had your deed in your house, you don't have any way to prove which property was yours. Mm. And sometimes they'd inherited the property, but they hadn't gone down to the courthouse and filed it. Mm. And so there are still enormous legal hassles just trying to establish which piece of the ground here was mine Mm. and how can I get back home and how can I work through the, the system of, trying to get assistance so government failed at every level Mm -hmm. every level and part of uh, part of that is that records were lost and if people didn't have theirs with them when they left they have not been able to get the assistance they need to get back into place
0: Mm -hmm. let's go to. uh... We'll go to a short break, and we will right back with Dr. Ellen Blue. All right, we are back to uh, with Dr. Ellen Blue, and we're talking about um, her latest book uh, regarding the recovery of Katrina and uh, how devastation brought life uh, in many ways, but also continue to, I guess, be a vexing or a complicated or complex situation as there as well. And I have a question for you, Dr. Blue. Um, uh i'm reading um this book uh, called uh white trash uh like 400 history 400 year history of fighting uh, class in the united states and it's a fascinating book i guess my question is this um, the, the book this book talks about uh the waste people the people that we can live live without uh because you know they are lower socioeconomic strata and and, and you know, I mean, besides Native Americans and African Americans, this is we're talking about. The book focuses on on Hawaii people. My question to the, to you is the how how does the larger church perceive these rebirth in in New Orleans? Do they see them as you know like lesser uh, a lesser version, or or they really just uh, they have they have gained their own right uh, by their work and their presence in these areas?
2: Uh, that, that's an a extremely interesting question. It is... Uh, there's almost a geographical answer to it uh, down here. And I chose for for a number of reasons to really focus on the city itself Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and uh, because there was just so much, uh, you know, I have an office full of material that did not make (laughs) it into the book and that is not an exaggeration. (laughs) Uh, An Office full of material that did not make it into the book and a lot of the folks who are white and who are in the socioeconomic Uh, strata that you're talking about, or that I understand you to be asking me about, tend to have moved into neighboring parishes. Mm -hmm. And some of them absolutely were affected by the storm, but not in precisely the same way that the city of New Orleans was. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit difficult for me to, to plug that question into the city. Uh, because St. Bernard Parish and Jefferson Parish and some of the the neighboring uh, parishes along with the parishes on the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain have been populated in part by people who chose to leave the city when school integration uh, was Mm -hmm. uh, begun and so forth so uh when i was talking about the lower ninth Ward, that was populated at the time of the storm by primarily african-american people
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh years before it had been uh, folks of german descent who were farmers and so forth mm-hmm. but as time has moved on and different land uses have have come to the forefront down here it has um, there, there have been uh, obviously middle class and lower middle class folks in the city, but it's been also one that has been characterized by a big gap between rich people and very poor people. Mm. So, um, I think that, I think that. I haven't read the book that you're talking about, but mm-hmm. I need to read the book that you're talking about. You know, certainly where I grew up in, in uh, central Louisiana, that's part of it. And the fear that white people are experiencing as they look at uh, 2044, 2040, yes. uh, the year, mm-hmm. you know, that white people yes. are no longer going to be in the majority, I think you certainly see some... Uh, very destructive things mm-hmm. going on in society because mm-hmm. of that reluctance to lose what they perceive as mm-hmm. something that has um, been a benefit to them. Right. I, I think that's, you know, very much in evidence, but I don't think that it's necessarily what's going on in new Orleans. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a lot of the rebuilding of new Orleans with uh, Uh, city or government uh, or developers uh, they too saw the flood as wiping the slate clean and an opportunity to rebuild New Orleans in a way that they would like to see it rebuilt Um, and there's a lot of gentrification that took place Hmm. as as part of the rebuilding that New Orleans was rebuilt specifically for a upper middle class to upper class um, um, group of people and uh, it kind of left others out of the woodwork, uh, particularly people of color and people who are part of the diaspora, like in like in the Lower Ninth Ward. Uh, so, can you speak a little bit to that, and perhaps even where the church fits into all that?
2: Uh, where the church fit into that is it hasn't. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the church, has, <laughs> the church uh, as I say in the book, you know that we did very well or as well as anybody could possibly expect at doing what we did, at at trying to achieve justice within our own structure and so forth. Mm -hmm. Where we failed is in being a prophetic voice and speaking to things that were going on in the larger community. Mm -hmm. And one of them is being at the table where those kinds of decisions were made. Mm -hmm. Um, There have certainly been... Um people with their own agendas, uh, in terms of uh, trying to make money, mm-hmm. uh, trying to see the city become wider than it was, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, making it more Republican and less Democrat. Uh, because it was, you know, kind of a blue dot and a red state, <laughs> and so several different things have been mm. going on, and what the church has had to say about that is nothing. Mm. Uh, now, to be fair, mm. when I was down here in 2008 and nine on sabbatical and spent over a year here every day, it took me months into it to begin to see what was missing. Mm-hmm. When you're in a situation that is that overwhelming, mm-hmm. you don't get the big picture. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was giving a paper at the Mint, there was a panel on religion and and Katrina, and a woman in the back said, why is the church not there at, at these tables? And that was the first time I'd noticed. That was the first time any of us had noticed uh, on the panel there. And it it really took me completely aback. And I began to to watch that. I began to particularly go to meetings that were not church oriented. And sure enough, the church wasn't there. Now, part of it, I think, was what I said earlier about the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. The city was furious. Even people who weren't Catholic were Mm -hmm. furious over what uh they perceive the archdiocese to be doing Mm -hmm. and why would you invite such an entity who (laughs) who didn't listen who didn't care all the things that they were perceived as Mm -hmm. not doing why would you invite them to Mm -hmm. come and help plan the city overall um now, I will also say that although I'm not talking about disaster response, there were thousands of vans going through the city as people came in multiple times to help rebuild. Mm. And so that did help change perception of the church, too. But on these big issues, the, the basic response was there wasn't one, uh, mm. both on the part of the city thinking, oh, gee, we ought to have the church comment mm-hmm. on this, and on the part of the church, we ought to be getting ourselves invited to these tables. Mm-hmm. It simply didn't happen. So that's a part of the last chapter in the book. Okay, what what is it time to do now? Mm. And even more important than the development and the city planning to me is climate change and coastal erosion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you look at what would have happened with these storms if the barrier islands had not been eroded, mm. uh, if climate change weren't mm-hmm. there, and why do we have coastal erosion? Well, a large part of it is because of oil and gas mm. industry. and. Activity And we obviously don't have time for me to explain that, even if I had the, the words. But believe me, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the book By You Farewell by Mike Tidwell is a wonderful, wonderful introduction to that. And we don't talk about that either. Why? Mm-hmm. Because so many of our members are employed right. by the oil and gas industry. Yes. Uh, because climate change is such a hot topic mm-hmm. and so politically fraud and so on mm-hmm. and so forth and so for me the the things that really are crucial for us to talk about because so many of the development decisions have already been made mm-hmm. uh, is how are we going to as a church care for creation how are we going to get ourselves together and say hey we have something to say about this and we have an obligation and we have the authority to Mm -hmm. speak to these issues Mm -hmm. Uh, so that that prophetic voice that that um a sense of being part of the larger community being part of the larger world being part of creation is where we have been lacking and where we need to step up to the plate Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. now Mm
3: -hmm. yes
2: Dr. Blue. You previously
1: wrote really? a book uh, called "St. Mark's and the Social Gospel," yes, and um, it, that really dealt with one particular congregation um, and the influence of uh, the influence of the. Hold on, just a minute. I lost my terminology. <laughs> uh, the The influence of uh, Methodist women. Yes. and they're um, on doing uh, just incredible things in the in the community, and so I'm curious, what are some parallels, if any, parallels um, did you find between these two, these two situations, these two books?
2: Uh, Saint Mark's and the Social Gospel really focused on. Uh, a community center which began Mm -hmm. as a settlement house that was founded by women in the methodist episcopal church south
3: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, around the turn of the 20th century and they are in the french quarter Mm -hmm. and really worked toward racial tolerance and understanding but also worked with the idea of life abundant Mm -hmm. Um, there were voices that were speaking very very adamantly that the church should not be involved in meeting needs that were not spiritual needs if, if someone was starving that was their problem you know and <laughs> right. did not have health care and so forth that that was not the church's responsibility mm-hmm. uh that that was something that they should deal with in some other way the church should be only concerned with uh the salvation of their soul So the women really believed that life abundant was more than spiritual, that if you were not able to uh, have a full life in every way, that that was indeed something that Jesus would have been concerned about and something they should be concerned about. So there are, uh, I think, some real parallels with the ministries that, Began after Katrina in terms of, for instance, the healthcare ministry and so forth. Uh, Luke's House, which is uh, a project of Rain and Mount Zion and uh, also Parker, some other churches, uh, the healthcare that they're providing even helps young people get jobs when they need a uh health certificate to get a job and and don't have health insurance because they haven't had a job and uh you know it, 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 it everything is so interconnected and the way that they have recognized that all of these things matter and all of these aspects of life and life abundant are something that church people uh, should be concerned about, that you cannot divorce one aspect of life from all the other aspects of life. Uh, so there are some some serious um, likenesses and similarities in, in these two situations. Furthermore, our People's Community Center, which is where Apex Youth Ministry that I was talking about, which is mm-hmm. where Luke's House is now um, housed, uh, they're using that same building. Other ministries are occurring there. Was a community center that the Northern Church women planted mm. along about the same time. So, uh, although my book focused on what the uh, MECs women were doing, this actually began. This facility is there because of the the so-called Northern Church women mm. and their work. So everything all flows together for a historian for a historian yes. you know you you don't just see today without seeing right. yesterday right. as well mm-hmm. and st marks the congregation down there is one of the truly fascinating stories after katrina they yeah. were very small very very much struggling and now have a congregation which is full of street people of people who live in the quarter, um, academics who are um, longing for that kind of a congregation and you know it's standing room only every Sunday morning mm-hmm. there in St. Mark's uh, but with a congregation that looks utterly different than, than the one before the storm or any other congregation here in the city mm-hmm. so um it's very it's very exciting to watch mm-hmm. uh, people being willing to do things they wouldn't have been willing mm-hmm. to do before. Right,
3: mm-hmm.
1: a little mm-hmm. bit of terminology for some of our non Methodist listeners: um, Methodist Episcopal Church South and Methodist Episcopal Church North, or Methodist Episcopal Church, um, was the division of the Methodist Church over slavery. Um, That's right. So the United Methodist Church hasn't always been united.
2: no we have not and (laughs) so uh, just untied (laughs) (laughs) and and
1: uh so it was uh there was a split over slavery and it took uh, until 1939 for those two branches to come back together um and so in the midst of the we would have churches that were actually uh side by side even Mm -hmm. that were two different denominations
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely.
1: And so the so the reference to the work that that are uh, the reference that you were making to the work that was being done uh, was that uh, this St. Mark's was a product of the the Southern branch of the Methodist Church, and then you said St. Luke's, I believe, was the product of the Northern branch mm-hmm. initially.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Thanks for reminding me that not everyone is a
3: Methodist. <laughs> <historian>.
1: <laughs> Oh, well,
0: I, I'm just still fascinated by the whole story, and and uh, you know, I'm, I've been asking these um, kind of our to our um, guests, and I think that this is a question to you too that I would like for to hear you answer. Um, kind of goes in the same way that my previous question, but um, you know, how how. To others, like we had the person or the uh, church planter who is running the union in uh, Dallas, which is a new church start with Coffee House nearby uh, Southern Methodist University. And it is kind of very new way and creative way to do things. And a lot of uh, like Travis does Bar Church and, and that's another creative way. So we interview a lot of people who are doing these creative things. And my question is this to them. Uh, how do you manage, on the one hand, being creative, being out there with, you know, where where God is doing something uh, that at times does not match, sometimes even conf- conflicts with what the institutional church wants and needs? So my question to you is because I, you know, I also in this and that side are kind of in those both worlds, if you will, on the one hand, I, you know, from my own ethnicity and my whole uh push to the church to become more multi-ethnic and more multicultural and then trying to address the uh, whole deal of uh, sustainability because you know the uh, hispanic african-american uh as a general rule uh, wouldn't be able as again as a general rule to sustain a traditional church united methodist church because we have a lot of overhead uh, so my question to you is, how the churches within the city that, that you describe in the book and you're describing to us, how can they be you know, uh, faithful to the gospel, faithful and creative to what they're doing and reaching out to the community, but they're also working out with the institution? How, how do you see that perceived, that, again, that dichotomy or that stress between institutional church and sustaining something? Uh, uh, quantity and then the quality or if you will or the uh, creativity and where God is working and the Holy Spirit working in all those ministries that you were sharing with us before
2: yes this is uh, a long-standing issue and one that, as you say, is not limited to New Orleans Mm -hmm. by any stretch. Uh, The question of how are we going to be faithful uh, to the community, to people who are unlikely to be able to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining? How are we going to be faithful as a church to, to those communities? And by and large, the issue is that we have not, I Mm. mean, the the reality is that we have not been faithful. And the institution of the church trying to preserve itself, as you put it, is the crux of it. Mm. Uh, The bishops and the cabinets, as they look at declining memberships and so forth, uh, really seem, unwilling as much as unable to step out and say we have a community here that needs our help even when we know that they will not be able to contribute back the number of dollars that Mm -hmm. we wish they could contribute back in the time frame in -hmm. which we wish that would happen. Mm Uh, Because the reality is, in the country as a whole, we're seeing so much more disparity in Mm -hmm. income. And Mm -hmm. the people who do not have enough are not gaining at the rate that Mm -hmm. uh, we would like to see their income gaining. Mm -hmm. So the... Sheer commitment on the part of the church to give uh, when it will not get in return, in my view, has been missing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And here in the city, we have seen some commitment to ministry to a Hispanic population, to Latino mm-hmm. Latina population. Mm-hmm. But when you consider the fact that after the storm, the minis- the population grew here from maybe 3% before the storm to 25 to 30% wow. after the storm, mm-hmm. as folks came in to do construction. Mm-hmm. We certainly did not see our commitment grow
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, to those communities. We did not see the number of people brought in who were able to speak Spanish we certainly did not see uh, what it would have taken to be in ministry in any way proportional mm-hmm. to the population after the storm mm-hmm. and we still don't see that mm-hmm. we see some growth we see some larger commitment mm-hmm. in part on the part of the individual congregation mm-hmm. first grace mm-hmm. that I talked about that mm-hmm. was the merger
3: mm-hmm.
2: but um, it simply hasn't happened and I don't know what it will take for it to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I know that, you know, I have some personal experience in Oklahoma with, um, knowing that the cabinet, you know, certain members of the cabinet have just said, well, that church is never going to be self-sufficient
3: mm-hmm.
2: and therefore nothing. Right. You know. So, so that's, uh, I think one of the ongoing challenges mm-hmm. for the church, uh, spoke earlier about, uh, some of the, the fear and resentment about mm-hmm. the fact that whites are no longer going to be in the majority. Mm-hmm. And that is something the church has not mm-hmm. come to grips with, right. um, I wish I had an answer for how to make that happen, <laughs> and I don't. Uh, but it's one of the things that the church has to to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the things that we have to keep mentioning. It's one of the things that it's important that we not pretend that we're doing when we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah this it, is
1: on a side note. It seems to me that um, the professional ministry in the sense of um, uh, ministry as a vocation mm-hmm. uh, plays a large factor into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we've on on multiple levels, on, one on the level of the amount of education required for professional ministry and how that disconnects you one with from the, uh, the folks that are lacking uh, uh, the means for education. But uh, also the idea that uh, when we have uh, professional ministry and that there's a required uh, uh, benefits and pension, and I mean, the, the package for a full time elder uh, is just not sustainable in mo- many of these communities. Uh, yeah,
0: so. we, we elders are too expensive. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, which, you know, makes means that we need to have a lot more focus on bivocational ministry mm-hmm. and some of those aspects as well i'm sure
0: or alternative ways of funding but that is another thing
1: yeah that's a whole different story uh, so dr blue the last question that i have is what if any lessons from um from in case of katrina have you drawn that we can apply to our context uh within um, here in oklahoma city or in Tulsa? Or wherever we happen to be doing Mm -hmm. ministry
2: one of the things that I think is important for people to recognize is that we are all vulnerable Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly everyone living near the coast is vulnerable because of climate change Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. coastal erosion Mm -hmm. and you know, until I counted up, I didn't realize how many of our states are uh, have a coast. It's something like 23, I think, out wow. of 50 that, that are on the ocean. But does that mean that in the heartland you're not vulnerable? No. What does it mean that this is the hottest month on yeah. record ever?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, does that affect your life? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it affects us in Oklahoma as mm-hmm. well. And the ability to imagine ourselves in a situation where we cannot go on as we have always gone on Mm -hmm. uh, is hard for people, I think. Mm -hmm. We don't want to think about Mm -hmm. um, change. We -hmm. don't want to think about problems. We want Mm -hmm. to assume that everything will be as it has been. And we as a church can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the fact that our members are declining and so on and so <laughs> forth. I'm talking about the fact that society as a whole and creation as a whole, mm-hmm. is uh, they are changing. Mm-hmm. And they are changing in large part because of things that we have done mm-hmm. and have not done.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And for us to to honestly come to grips with the fact that Everything is not as God intended it to be.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Rather, everything is as we have said yes and no to God and made change in the world we live in Mm -hmm. Uh, and not just our human relationships, but the world itself, Mm -hmm. the earth itself. So this necessity... To recognize that we are accountable Mm -hmm. we are responsible Mm -hmm. for how we live the decisions that we make Mm -hmm. and for what we as a church choose to talk about Mm -hmm. what we choose to preach about what we choose to write about Mm -hmm. uh, how we choose to be in conversation with those around us Mm -hmm. um, whether we agree to talk about the hard issues Mm -hmm. and to make the changes that are difficult to make, um, matters. Mm -hmm. It matters very much. And it matters not just to us, but it matters to, uh, generations to come. And it matters to people who are living on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. One of the, the things that I talk about in the book is, um, the way that theology matters. Mm. And I talk about Ann Jo. Dr. Jo is mm-hmm. at Garrett, the United Methodist Seminary mm-hmm. in Chicago. And one of her books talks about Han, which is uh, a Korean term for the consequences of sin that live on and with us. But she doesn't just talk about Han and mm-hmm. evil or sin or Problems. She also talks about chung, which is uh, the substance in rice that makes the grains of rice stick together. (laughs) And she talks about chung as an idea that uh, we can use to think about our relationships Mm -hmm. and the way that all humans are Mm -hmm. bound together. Whether we want to be or not, we are bound together. Mm -hmm. And to honor, that uh, stickiness, <laughs> to appreciate that stickiness. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, if you've ever tried to eat rice with chopsticks, you, you know that that the ability to stick together, these grains to stick together, means the difference between starving and not starving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this, this uh, mandate that we have to speak hope, Mm -hmm. and to speak truth Mm -hmm. and to speak connection Mm -hmm. and to speak relationship Mm -hmm. is where we need to focus Mm -hmm. it is the truth that we need to be speaking and the hope that we need to be preaching Mm -hmm. and so this to me is is the takeaway it is not um the evil and the badness but rather Mm -hmm. the necessity for Mm -hmm. for hope and um Truth. Truth
0: telling. Truth Mm -hmm. telling. Wonderful. I mean, how how can how can you follow that? (laughs) That was very profound. I'm glad you wrote it.
2: Thank you. I am too. And boy am I glad it's finished. (laughs) 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 Travis is also glad it's finished.
1: Um, Dr. Blue, thank you so much for taking yes. the time to share with us your insights and uh, your learning from this project. Wow. Um, in case of Katrina, check it out. It's Amazing. on Amazon. And uh, mm-hmm. are there other places that we can we can find that?
2: It is available on Kindle. Uh, it is available at the Wiffenstock website, WIPF and stock.com and it's $5 cheaper there Ah, than it is on Amazon. Uh, but Amazon is obviously the easiest place to acquire it either Mm -hmm. in paperback or on your Kindle. Mm -hmm. So go out and buy one for your friends. too. Yes.
0: Yes. It's a good, uh, present Christmas present. And just, just a wonderful thing. Well, Dr. Blue, thank you again. And it's wonderful to see you and, um, wonderful always to talk to you and hear all your wisdom and, and what you have to say to us so thank you again for taking the time to to be in our podcast
2: oh thank you for inviting me this has been fun and i really appreciate your doing this
0: thank you well i'm carlos ramirez one of your hosts this is
1: travis Uden.
0: and ellen blue awesome and thank you and see you soon adios To access all the information used in the creation of this podcast, please visit thedoorisopen.org.